Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Lawrence Mbwagbo talk about health equity research. He discusses topics such as what he has been working on, how we learn to collaborate and network, and the difference between academia and other professions. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us in the Spark podcast today. I have Dr. Lawrence Blogbo here with me today. And you heard him previously on an episode in early 2021, speaking about health equity and research. I look forward to connecting with you today to talk about what you've been doing since the last time you've been on this podcast. So doc, Dr. Lawrence, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thanks, Ruth, and I am very happy to be here. So since you were last on the podcast, what have you been working on? I have been doing a lot of things, and thank you for asking. Um, In the past few years, there has been a lot of interest in equity, so it has created more opportunities for people like me who are interested in equity and for students who are interested in working on equity-related projects. So um, I have been invited to give several presentations at McMaster and at the Hospital for Sick Kids on how to improve the enrollment of ethnic minorities in clinical research. And a lot of these presentations have involved me inviting researchers to approach it from a sampling perspective in the sense that the participants in your research should resemble your target population. So if you're interested in um, applying your research to the population of Toronto, and then the people in your study should be as diverse as the population in Toronto. And um, this diversity should include age, sex, gender, ethnicity, um, occupation, level of income, and all the different things that make up a person's social demographics. And then um, we also recommend that people work with diverse investigators and research staff because um, research has shown that um, people are more likely to participate in research when it is run by people who look like them. So it's important to have that diversity in the research staff. And then we also encourage multimodal communication so you can... um, teach people about the study, communicate with them about the study procedures using video, audio, written text. And it's also worthwhile um, investing in translation. And we also recommend that you accommodate people's difficulties in participating in research, which may be transportation, parking, childcare, food, and and that sort of thing. And every time you say this, um, researchers will say, but this costs money. the solution to that is to work all of these into your grants, right? You would never not get funded because you asked for more money to accommodate for um, other minority groups. So that's um, something which researchers should think about and um, try to get all of these little pieces in their grants so that they can make more equitable research. 
Wow, Lawrence, you've described a lot of the the multifaceted nature of your work in health equity research. And I'm I'm wondering if I could just take a, a little bit of a turn to the side to ask you a bit about your path leading up to your time here at McMaster. And then I'll explore some of these details that you've expressed in your research. I recently saw the announcement that you were named university scholar for the year. So congratulations on that. And Thank you very it, much. I, I wonder what led you to McMaster and what was the path that brought you here? Okay, so I, I trained as a medical doctor in Cameroon and I practiced for a few years and I started getting interested in research and I got connected to some groups in South Africa, the South African Cochrane Center that were teaching African researchers about Cochrane reviews. So I ended up joining the Reviews for Africa program in 2008 and I started doing Cochrane reviews. Um, during that time where I was working, I was involved in a lot of public health work as opposed to the clinical work which I had. So I developed an interest in public health and I applied for a scholarship to study public health at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, I got the scholarship, I went there, um, I completed the master's in public health program, came back to Cameroon, practiced for a bit, and I thought I should do a PhD. So I reached out to the folks in South Africa as well, and I asked them if there were PhD opportunities, and um, they didn't have any opportunities, but they connected me to Professor Tabane here at McMaster, and he asked me to enroll in a postdoctoral fellowship program with the Canadian HIV Trials Network. So I did that fellowship and I used the research from that fellowship to develop a proposal for my PhD. And I applied for, for, for a position at McMaster and I got one and I also got a scholarship to come and study in Canada. And that's how I came to Canada. I completed my PhD and right after my PhD, I got hired as faculty. And you know the rest. Incredible. So um, given that you are a university scholar this year, are the plans that you have with your using your university scholar funding going to be exploring a different area of research or will you be building on your current research interests? So um, I will definitely be using it to support my current interests and most importantly, to support my students. I do have nine PhD students and um, four or five master's students. So um, I try to provide them with as much um, support as I can. And some of these funds will definitely go towards some of that support. So speaking of your nine PhD students, I had a chance to look at your website before our discussion today. And I was struck by how multifaceted your research programs are. The individuals that you work with, the learners, the PhD students that you're working with, and the various areas that they're focused on. And I think as I was looking through your website, you have such a wide range of connections as well as areas of investigation. 
I wonder if you can share with us your approach to forming these relationships with learners, so your supervisory relationships, how you approach building your program or programs of research, and then establishing all those collaborative networks and the many consultancies that you have. I feel like there are so many threads there that you've woven together in your own research work. Thanks, Ruth. So international collaboration has always been fairly easy for me, given that I trained in Cameroon, Israel, Canada, and I was part of the Reviews for Africa program in South Africa. So that already creates um, a huge network of people I can work with. And then in Israel, I had classmates from 15 different countries in my MPH program, and I have kept in touch with, with most of them. Um, parallel to that, I do work for the WHO either as a technical resource person, a systematic reviewer, or a guideline methodologist. And this further expands the scope of people I can work with and the countries from which they, they, they come from. And I, I try to keep these connections um, by being available to support people and also by reaching out if I need any help. Because it turns out um, when you know so many people, there's always one person who can solve whatever problem you, you may be facing. So with regards to supervision, um, I approach supervision in a flexible way since no two students are the same. The end goal is to provide them with technical and soft skills by the end of their training, right? And the technical skills are all the things which the graduate programs require them to learn. And the soft skills are things like networking, public speaking, collaboration, you know, writing emails appropriately, writing manuscripts, and you know, juggling peer review and all of that stuff. So I try to teach them that. And at the beginning of the program, everybody sets up a list of things they want to learn. When we have a critical mass of people who want to learn the same thing, and then I can put them together and, you know, try to get them what they need. But generally, um, everybody has their own unique sort of personal curriculum that they follow with me. Um, in addition to the papers I have written about how to succeed in a research career, I also encourage them to think about the jobs they would like to hold and to make sure that they acquire the skills needed for those jobs, right? So the idea is if you think in the future, you're going to be a research methods consultant, and then you need to have a broad range of research method skills, you need to understand the various study designs, you need to know a little bit about biostatistics, health technology assessment, um, and all the parallel fields, including health policy, public health, um, guideline development, and all of that. You need to have that complete package. Whereas if you're planning to be a biostatistician, when you leave, and then you would focus a little bit more on the actual technical skills of being a biostatistician and the collaborative aspects, you know, how to work with clinicians, how to work with um, customers who are seeking your, your services. And for it to work well, if I am unable to provide what they need, I can find people who will support them. So I am a great advocate for co-mentorship. I am not the only one who can provide everything they need, and I, I link them up to various researchers at McMaster and outside for whatever they need. I, I'm, I'm just completely speechless at hearing you describe your, your approach to supervisorship, as well as your approach to building these collaborations and the extensive networks that you've developed. How did you learn how to do this? 
Or do you feel that it was just something inherent that as you were progressing in your professional life, you were just able to know which doors to go through and which doors to open? I'm curious about that. How did you learn this? So a lot of the learning has been by trial and error, but I I have been blessed with very excellent mentorship from some of the top researchers at McMaster. And um, they have taught me a lot of things I wouldn't have learned anywhere else. But then my background also positioned me to be um, in a good position to, to collaborate and network with many people. Since I trained as a medical doctor, I have a master's degree in public health and a PhD in health research methodology. So I am a full methodologist and also a full medical doctor, and I can see things from from different lenses. And then my program of research is also um, based on two overarching themes. The first is the topics I'm interested in, such as HIV, uh, mother and child health, M-health, health equity and capacity building. And I do research in those fields. And then the second theme is related to my work as a methodologist and um, as the director of the Baustats Unit at St. Joe's, where I support researchers at St. Joe's, McMaster and beyond in the design, analysis and reporting of their research. So because of this second theme, I get involved in a wide variety of projects because I work with people in pediatrics, anesthesia, rheumatology, radiology, and all the other fields um, you can imagine. So um, I I also inherited a rich legacy of providing high quality and timely support to other researchers. And many people still come back to us for more for more help and it expands the reach of the things we do and the kinds of people that we work with. Thank you for sharing that. That uh, was a theme that came came out to me when I was looking at your website too, is your content areas of interest, your HIV research, but also your methodological areas of expertise that you're able to share and to support uh, collaborative research and collaborative research teams. So I I appreciate you highlighting that here in our discussion today. I wonder, do you have uh, any specific examples of how you've supported, you've, you've alluded to when you're supporting your PhD students and depending on what their interest is in the future, you, you help and you offer guidance to help them along that path. Do you have any specific examples of how you approach learners who are interested in developing their academic path and going on an academic track? What are are some ways that you guide this individual along an academic track? And then I'll also ask you about those that are not interested in academia, but are also interested in getting their PhD to work in industry or in government, et cetera. That's a good question. We do have, um, I would say, about 40% of the students who are interested in academia. And it turns out it is one of the most challenging tracks to follow because there aren't many positions in academia to to begin with. So um, I tell them that to prepare yourself for academia, you need to make sure your CV looks like the CV of an assistant professor. 
which means you should have a decent number of publications, research output. You should be involved in um, grant writing and um, funding your own research so people know that you're capable of, you know, sourcing for funds and putting grants out there and trying to generate research income. And then the next thing which many people do not often think about is teaching. Academia is a mostly a teaching job and there's value in not only liking teaching, but also demonstrating your, your skills as a teacher, which means um, you should already start taking on roles like teaching assistant roles and um, creating what we call a teaching portfolio. It's sort of like a CV, but it includes only information about the teaching things that you have done. So this is not necessarily academic teaching. It can also be facilitating workshops and other things involved that involve capacity building. And I encourage students to get all of those things in, in, in their CVs so that it shows that they are a right fit for um, a faculty position. And also based on what their interests are, there's also value in showing that you have a specific research interest. For example, if your, your research interests are in infectious diseases and there's a university looking to strengthen your infectious disease research, then you become a prime candidate. So for that purpose, it'll be helpful to have a CV that reflects that this is your area of expertise. But then there are others who want to get into academia as methodologies to as biostatisticians where there's more value in showing that you master a breadth of different techniques. And these are helpful to be able to show in your CV. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of whether you want to go down the academic path of being a content area or, or reflecting your content expertise and developing and building your research program in a particular area versus you're, you want to build your skill set and your methodological range and experience. How do you guide and mentor your PhD students who are not interested in the academic path or feel that that academic path is not most closely aligned with their own professional interests and they want to pursue a path outside of academia. Okay. Personally, I, I, I don't feel there is a real dichotomy between um, the different fields you can take after your PhD, but for the purposes of having the conversation, we'll talk about academia, industry, and government or NGOs. And for those who are interested in pursuing a role in industry, the first thing which I'll recommend for them is to do postings with industry, try to understand how what the work environment is and see if it is suitable for them. Because the working environment industry is very different from academia. It's very different from how they did things in school. And um, it's also very different when you're working for the government. So it's worthwhile for them to find small postings and internships where they can go there, shadow people and see exactly how it works. And then when you're preparing your CV for industry versus academia, um, um, you need to show that you are capable of delivering the task, that you can do the job, as opposed to academia where it's a blend of showing that you can do it and that you can also teach about it. 
right? And you can do research about it because there's some industry jobs that might not necessarily involve that much research. And there are also some that might involve research where it's interesting showing that you have that methodological background. But then I, I also ask them the one question which I ask myself all the time. Are you comfortable with the nine to five or you like flexible work times? And if you like a flexible work time, academia is most likely the best place for you. But if you're comfortable with a very structured work environment, working from one project to the other, nine to five, industry and government would be a better fit for you. Yeah. In addition to whether or not you enjoy teaching and you like that aspect of the academic role, I hear you. And one thing which I might add is that... um, because of my role as a consultant, I do consulting for industry and I do consulting for um, government, even though I am primarily based in academia. So I have a little sense of how it works in some of those other places. And I think it's interesting. I like I like the, the academic role better because I get to play in everybody's backyard. Well, I think that you have so many connections and networks that you've built within the academic realm, as well as with industry and government and all those international collaborations that you described. Thinking about your multifaceted work and the many individuals that you're supervising, as well as the many collaborations that you've developed and you're maintaining, what's this coming year like for you? What are you looking forward to? And what will you be focusing on in the coming year? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So so this year I am looking to reinvest my commitment on my PhD students. I would like to see them writing more papers and getting more exposure. During the pandemic, they didn't have the opportunity to um, go to conferences and present and all of that. So I'm trying to make sure that a lot of that happens more. Um, I'll try to get as many of them to as many conferences as possible, try to get them to write as many papers as they can and move all of their projects forward in, in a significant way. I am also taking on some new students um, whom I'll, I'll have to show the path and link them to the other students I really have so that they get a sense of how it is to work with me. And I'm also getting some new postdoctoral fellows as well. I have a student who got a Banting Fellowship. So that's that's going to be something new for me. I've never supervised the Banting Fellow before. So I'm looking forward to that new challenge. Wow. So even more students than the nine PhD students that you have right now and your uh, your your network of uh, learners is expanding as well into the postdoc and the Banting fellows that you'll be taking on. Yes, it is. Now, thank you so much for our conversation. And I, I wonder to wrap up our time here, we had spoken before we started the recording about your uh, gaming. And I wonder, is this an area that you feel has has been more of an outlet uh, that is separate from your academic and research world and your uh, work there? Or do you feel that that gaming uh, world and your your gaming has built 
or fostered a, um, a certain skills within your work environment? That's that's an excellent question. And, and to be honest with you, I wouldn't call myself a gamer per se because I play very casually and um, not very often. But I find it to be a very, very good outlet, especially on the days when I don't feel like doing anything outdoors. And then I can relax at home, get out the game and, and have some fun. And I can also play with my kids. Um, we also enjoy playing games together. So it's more of an outlet for me than anything else. Great. And, and um, I don't know much about the gaming world. So I was always wondering whether there was a component where building these networks and the skills that are required to build networks in the gaming world would translate into the way that we can develop our networks or develop our skills with networking in our professional lives. So that's where my question was coming from. There are some similarities um, in the sense that um, if, if you're playing a game with somebody online at the same time, you have to be there at the same time, right? You have to have that schedule of time where playing from X time to X time so that um, it's it's synchronous. And then obviously there's the communication. Sometimes you can do it by text or you can, it can be audio communication. It could even be video as well. So you can actually see the person. So it's not very different from a Teams meeting, but it's a right. Teams meeting with a very different kind of goal. Yeah, and I appreciate that you mentioned you can also play with your kids as well. So that that whole connection in the virtual realm, in addition to your physical connection with them. Thank you for being here today, Lawrence, and I appreciate our conversation. Thanks for having me, Ruth. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D dot C-A. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.